Hey everyone, welcome back to Tear and Apologetics. Super pumped you're joining us today. Today I have Dr. Mike Berg. We're going to be talking about his recent book that he published with Zondervan, Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew. Uh, Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible. Dr. Berg, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I'm not too bad, man. Thank you for having me and a big hello to all your listeners. Yeah, right on. I'm super pumped to talk about this book and everything that's going on with it and the Bible. And I know that's not coffee you're sipping, right? It's not coffee, it's tea. I assure you. I assure you, it's definitely tea. It's definitely tea. Well, maybe one of these days you'll change your ways, but you know, for now, I guess it's it's all right. So, um, so what we're going to do today is just talk about like a general survey of this book that got published in 2021. Um, so, Doctor Bird, do you have any like preliminary thoughts or things you want to say before we dive into it? Well, no, this was just a book I wrote after you know the experience of being in church and hearing the questions that a lot of Bible um, you know believing people have. It's also written. And after talking to some people who don't necessarily know a lot about Christianity or the Bible and rely on certain caricatures or rumors or almost conspiracy theories about what the Bible is and where it came from. Mm -hmm. So just to dive off right into it, Dr. Bird, what is the Bible? Uh, the Bible is a collection of uh, sacred literature that is meaningful to Jews and Christians all over the world. And Jews and Christians claim this is not merely human writings on the topic of religion. They believe it's something that is divinely revealed, that God, in some way, perhaps mysteriously even, um, gives to human authors, to human agents, his own word that he wants them to declare to the people of the time. And that's what uh, the Bible is. It's, it's meant to be the word of God, uh, the word of God in its inscripturated form. So when we have the Bible, we have like this like kind of sense of um, if we're a Christian or a Jew that like this is God inspired and there's something to this text that isn't just merely like humans writing what's going on here. Yeah, well, I mean, this is this is the issue. On the one hand, the Bible is a very human book. It's written in human words. It's it's written in uh, diverse ancient languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic and the like. So there is a human component there. But there's also this idea that behind it stands divine authority and divine enablement. That is to say, God gave his word to authors and he enabled them to write what he wanted to be communicated to his people. Now, that's largely what, what uh, theologians and philosophers mean by the doctrine of inspiration. Uh, but the actual mechanics of it, how inspiration actually works in practice, that's where it gets a little bit more controversial. Mm. So one of the more controversial topics is like wondering like how it got put together. So if we're going to like summarize um, this question, like Dr. Bird, how did the Bible get put together? Because obviously we have like, all these different kinds of books with different kinds of like um, points they're trying to make and whatnot. So how does this all come together in what we know is like the Bible? Yeah, well, there's a few different views we have to dispel. We've got to dispel the idea that it basically floated out of the sky, bound in leather uh, written in ye old English with the words of Jesus in red, complete with, you know, study notes at the bottom. That's obviously not where the Bible came from. But then there's the other side of it that says the Bible was basically invented by Constantine, the emperor in the fourth century, as a way of using religion to bring a control and uniformity to his empire. That's also not what actually happened. With the Old Testament, you seem to have a developing body of written traditions uh, based largely around Moses, you know, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch or the Torah. Uh, they seem to uh, emerge before the exile, although some, some people think they got like a, a priestly editing 
slightly after the exile. Then you have numerous prophetic authors also writing, you know, a word from God to Israel, both before and after the exile, and certainly all the way into the Persian period. Then you have various uh, other writings like the Book of Psalms, which, you know, uh, may have started out with some things that David wrote, some songs that King David had. But then you've also got other material from people like the Sons of Korah and that kind of thing. And, and that becomes its own distinct collection. And then you've got some of the more later writings that are added as well, such as uh, the Book of Daniel and a few other things. And then during the Hellenistic period, when you know the world gets taken over by the, the Greeks led by Alexander the Great, Jews under that period also begin doing their own writings, writings about God. And some communities began to recognize uh, the spiritual quality or hear the divine voice in that. And that's where you get writings such as the wisdom of Solomon, or you even get someone like Ben Sirach who writes in Hebrew, but again gets translated and largely popularized in Greek. And then you get to uh, the first Christians and they're obviously um, carrying on their own traditions about Jesus You've got Paul's letters uh, develop and they become a distinct collection. You get the four gospels and then you'll also get the general epistles. And eventually uh, Jewish and Christian communities are thinking through, well, what is our collection of sacred texts? And certainly by, I think, the end of the first century, you, you've got something pretty much amounts to the old, what we would call the Old Testament now. Our Jewish friends will order it slightly different from the way that we do it. I mean, they've got the Torah, the prophets, and the, and the writings. They've got a distinct way of ordering it. Uh, but the Christians then, very quickly in the second century, seems to have recognized the four Gospels, uh, the letters of Paul, First Peter, and First John. And then eventually they, they begin to include some other writings, although these other writings were a little bit more contested and controversial, such as Second Peter, uh, the Epistle of James, you know, that kind of a thing. So uh, but by the time you get to the fourth century, there seems to be a very a strong and developed consensus of what is the official list of Christian sacred writings, even if it's a little bit fuzzy around the edges. Some people, some people still have doubts about something like uh, Second Peter. Some people wonder, hey, maybe, maybe one client should be in there. Or what about the Shepherd of Hamas? That's a pretty crackalackin book as well. Hmm. But generally, the consensus is established by the early fourth century. So do you think then, like, looking at the New Testament, Dr. Bird, do you think, like, Paul or, like, Matthew or, like, whoever's writing the New Testament, were they thinking, like, hey, I'm writing this book, and it's going to get put together in this collection of other, like, different, like, writings or things like this? Or was this something that, like, wasn't on the mind necessarily of, like, the original authors of, like, specifically the New Testament documents? Well, I don't think they were writing what we would call canon, okay? They didn't think that, okay, this is going to be, like, you know, Matthew thought this will be, you know, chapter one in the New Testament. I don't think that's what Matthew was thinking. Um, but the question is, did they think they were writing scripture? You know, in Greek, that would be the word graphe. Now, that's a slightly different question. Mm. Um, you know, you can have a lot, a, 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 if you, you put it like this, a, a scripture is a sacred text. Canon is a collection of sacred texts. Okay, so there's a difference between canon and scripture, I would say. So did some of the uh, New Testament authors think they were writing graphe? Did they think they were writing a sacred text? Um, in some cases, I think you could argue that they perhaps were conscious of that. Uh, I get the feeling uh, the Gospel of John, I mean, the author of the Gospel of John, thinks that this, this is a sacred story that is a continuation of Israel's history that reaches a climax with the divine revelation of God in the incarnation of the Son of God. And this is going to have continuing um, 
implications and resonances for the believing community thereafter. So some people, this is not just me, some people have wanted where, in the very least, maybe the Gospel of John thinks of itself not just as religious literature, but as a literature with a sacred quality that is somewhat God-given and is meant to be continually meaningful and perhaps even authoritative for the communities that the author is associated with. Uh, very quickly, um, people did regard Paul's letters with a type of sacred authority. Um, you, know, you find in Second Peter, you know, it compares Paul to the other scriptures. So you've got you know, that perspective going on. But very quickly in the early church, um, there was a veneration of Jesus and then pretty much anything associated with Jesus. So if you could find the words of Jesus um, in, in a text like the Gospel of Matthew, uh, people were open to it. Uh, but people were also open to wherever you could find it. So if you could have like a Gospel of the Ebionites, which seems to be perhaps a Jewish Christian text, uh, some Christians were even open to that as a source of divine authority if it had authentic words of Jesus on it. Now, in the final dust-up, people dec declined to include it in the canon uh, because they had questions about its, about its authenticity and where it really came from. But wherever you found the words of Jesus, um, Christians were willing to say here is a sacred text because it has the sacred words of our sacred savior. Hmm. That's great. Thanks, Dr. Bird. So my next question then for you is, what does it mean for us to say that the Bible is inspired by God? Obviously, there's lots of different like meanings and, you know, there's the whole inerrancy debate and things like this. But, like when we're looking at it, what does it mean to say like the Bible is inspired? Yeah, that's a good question. And inspiration can mean different things to different people. For some people, the word inspiration means like, you know, Matthew was sitting on the Sea of Galilee on the shore there looking at the sun deflecting off the waters and he felt the peace and the tranquility and he thought well i reckon jesus would say blessed other peacemakers so i'm going to write and jesus said unto them blessed other peacemakers for some people that's what they think inspiration is for others they think inspiration is uh kind of like dictation basically matthew went into his study he got out a big scroll he got his little ink pot and he got his quill and then he prayed and then all of a sudden the eyes rolled back in his head he went into some kind of ecstatic trance. And when he'd woken up three hours later, he had the gospel of Matthew written in front of him. Okay. So mm. there's, there's probably two extreme views of what mm. people think biblical inspiration is. I don't think it's any of those. What you have is what I would call a supernatural synapsis between God's intention, God's purposes, as it's filtered through the mind, the experiences, the vocabulary the personality and the writing style of the individual author. So God effectively gives, implants, or uh, effuses his own words, his own intentions, his own divine concepts into the mind of the author so that what they write is simultaneously, you know, a, a human book, but it's simultaneously a divine word in and through human language. So I think you've got that, that, you know, supernatural conjunction of the divine voice with the human mind. And I, I think that that's what explains the phenomena of scripture. Okay. It, it mm -hmm. shows us that we have here. It's not, it's not some sort of, you know, mystical angelic language. It's not the kind of heavenly version of Klingon that it's written in. It's written in human language. It has to be, otherwise no one will understand it. 
but God uses human experiences, personality, their traits. I mean, there are some weird things that happen in scripture. Like you know, when Paul's writing to the Corinthians and he says, you know, oh yeah. And uh, why, why are you people arguing about baptizing? I don't remember baptizing anyone. And he, and he oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay. I baptized the house of Stephanus. But apart from that, I don't remember baptizing anyone. Now, I, I don't think God deliberately made Paul forget, you know, who he baptized, but you know, God uses um, Paul's own, you know, memory failing. He, he sticks it in there because God, Paul's, Paul's own personality and memory is not being overpowered, you know, but rather God is using Paul's own experiences and writing style to convey his word to the audiences with the message he believed they needed to hear. So that's, that's what I think inspiration is. I think that's great. And I think it fits with like a kind of story that a lot of Christians want to share saying that what God's doing in this world is creating a world where we can work with God and interact with God and kind of un- bring the unfolding of the plan that God has for the world. And it seems like with scripture, like you want to say like a similar story where um, God has his mission of what he wants to communicate with us, but he allows for like human beings to be like the beers who bring forth this message. Um, is there something right about that? Or do you think I'm falling off track here and going a little crazy? What do you think? No, I think that makes sense. You know, we have God's uh, cooperative communication. I mean, it's not like kind of God, you know, driving, you know, it's not like God gets his word and kind of drives into the ears, you know, of human authors, like he's like, like sticking a pike throat or something like that. But it's not kind of he, he says to, to like, you know, um, hey, David, something about vaguely about shepherds and valleys, you know, something nice mm-hmm. and, you know, encouraging. And David then goes, oh, yeah, how about Psalm 23? You know, it's it's not quite so vague as that. So, yeah, I, I think it is that cooperation between um, the, the divine and human to come up with a word that is simultaneously human and divine. Mm. So what does it mean then for us, Dr. Bird, to say that, like that the Bible is like a true document? Well, it's true for the senses in which it's intended. OK, mm. uh, the, the Bible is not a book that's going to help you perform uh, brain surgery. OK. It's not necessarily a book that's going to give you the uh, cure for every single disease you can find. It's, it's a book that concerns itself, first of all, with, with God, God's purposes and God's relationship with his people. So it touches on theology. It touches on ethics. Uh, it does make claims about history as well. You know, like, you know, the Israelites were brought out of Egypt. Um, there was a person called Jesus. There was a person called Paul who went around the Eastern Mediterranean proclaiming Jesus. So it does make historical claims. Um, some of those claims are very easy to establish. Like we you know, we definitely, I, I definitely believe there was a historical Jesus. Um, but there are some claims that might be a little bit harder to establish. There are debates about the archaeology of of Jericho. I mean, do we really have evidence that the walls came down? Some things are a bit ambiguous because you know, uh, dating dating some elements of archaeology can be difficult and we've also got to recognize these genres of the bible uh for example is is the book of job historical i mean was there a real person called job or was it a uh, something of an extended parable uh just that do, do you need a historical job for the book of job to be true so i mean these are some of the things that we discuss when we talk about the truth of the bible it's true uh but in what realm and in what sense does it um present itself as, you know, truths that happened in the, in, in the world of history. That's the thing that biblical scholars uh, spend many years and many pages discussing. Mm. I think it's helpful because it helps us realize that 
when we're looking at like obviously Genesis is a super like controversial passage. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at like certain re- readings, like obviously like um, like like take like the Pecanian Earth creationists because I'm a meanie and I love them, but I just have a hard time seeing it. Um, but so like take that like if you read that passage in that way, but that's not the way you're supposed to read it. Um, the Bible could still be true even if like um, the Earth creationism is false. So the question is just like how should we read the Bible and wondering like. Um, like what is the correct interpretation when we're navigating through like biblical text, and that's going to help us determine um, what it means to say like how the Bible is true. Is looking at like what is it actually trying to communicate to us? Yeah, I mean, and that's something that uh, people will uh, talk a lot about, and we can disagree about with. But when it, when it I mean, like when it, when you read Genesis one, for my mind, um, it's more about how do you have a God centered reality? You know, it's telling us that you live you live in a world made by God. The question of how God made the world, I think, is purely secondary. Okay, I mean, the, the main the main thing about Genesis one is don't worship the stars, don't worship the mountains, don't worship the sea. Worship the one who made the stars, who made the mountains, who made the sea. I mean, that's yeah. that's that's the, the main point. I think you're meant to take away. It's it's meant to be a panacea against idolatry. You know, don't worship the creatures, don't worship the creation, worship the creator of and of him we bear his image we are the royal children of god whom god has given custodian of this world so i mean if you understand something about genre something about an author's purpose if you look at the wider context a historical context a literary context they're going to give you some cues about the best way to um, understand a a, a given text like the bible So why then, Dr. Bird, do you think it's important for the Bible to be like rooted in history then? Well, I mean, that's because we have to understand that the context that things were written. So when you read something like a gospel, you've got to understand this is not like a modern autobiography or a modern biography. We're not dealing with uh, something with footnotes and quotation marks. Uh, It's not like you're reading the transcript of someone who is following Jesus around and recording the whole thing with an iPhone. So you've got to understand, you know, how they wrote history in the ancient world. What was the expectations? How do you write a biography of a, of a central, you know, of a central protagonist? And I mean, there's certain ways of doing that. Some ancient biographies can be very apologetic. You're wanting to uh, defend the protagonist from accusations that he did something wrong, or you're trying to extol the virtues. Uh, but then it's also tied into something like a sacred story. So there's also a connection between uh, ancient biography and Israel's sacred literature, because uh, the evangelists believe that the story of Jesus is something of a continuation and even a climax of Israel's story going on there. So if, if you know something about that, that's really going to help you uh, be more set up with what to expect and to understand what the text means, but also what function it's meant to have in your own reading experience. So that's why historical context matters for reading anything, whether it's Genesis 1 or the Gospel of Matthew. I think it's something super important to think about context, because there's a lot of times, like, I feel like in our lives, or if you just take statements we say and just, like, take them out of context, it can look really bad for us. Um, But, like, when you have that context, it helps you understand what's happening with what we're saying, because context is king. It's super important when we're thinking about this. So one of the things with related to context is that idea of like how we should interpret certain passages. So there's a lot of people that would say like, Hey, like we should just interpret everything literally. Um, let's say have really good reason to think otherwise. So why do you think like a literal interpretation is not always going to be the best interpretation when we're looking at the Bible as a context? Is it something else? Is it a combination of some things? 
Yeah, well, sometimes a literal interpretation is the best. Like when it says Jesus and his disciples came into Capernaum, I think Jesus and a band of 12 of his buddies um, all arrived in a town called Capernaum. Uh, but when Jesus, you know, Jesus uses uh, genres like parables or he uses parabolic speech saying like, I am the door uh, or, you know, I am the light of the world. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean that Jesus is like a gigantic light bulb who kind of illuminates everything wherever he goes. And again, if you understand uh, context uh, or the way certain literary genres function or how biblical writings are similar to uh, other writings around the world and the way that they're meant to function. You know, that's, that's going to give you some cues to, to help out. But, you know, but context is important because everything has meaning in a context. And if you take something out of context, uh, you, you know how that can have a, a detrimental effect on the understanding. I mean, we've all experienced what it's like when we've said something, but someone takes that out of context. You know, we, we all have that experience. But I can give you, you know, a, a number of ones, you know, in that, in that psalm where it says, be still and know that I am Lord. I mean, that's not a call for serenity. That's a call to stand back and watch God wipe out your enemies. I mean, that's that's the context. It often gets treated as proof. You need you need just to sit back, rest, and relax, and enjoy God's peace and, and God's grace to you. That's not what it's about in context. So literary context matters. Historical context matters. Even, I would say, canonical context also matters. So th these are things we need to be thinking about if we want to be better readers of the Bible. Mm, that's super helpful. So transitioning, Dr. Brett, I'd be curious to talk about like um, thinking of the Bible as a source of hope for us so as like Christians and believers. Um, when we look at the Bible, how should this give us a sense of hope in our day-to-day -day lives? As you wake up on a Wednesday morning in Sydney, Australia, how does the Bible like give you hope? Well, I definitely hope I didn't wake up in Sydney, Australia today. I'm in Melbourne. Oh, no. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. But if I woke up in Sydney this morning, it means I had a very wild night last night. Um, no. Uh, well, it does. Like, I, I was struck by reading Romans 15. And, you know, look, I'm a biblical scholar, but there are still things I find striking. I read the Bible professionally for a living. You know, mm -hmm. uh, there's still things that strike me, surprise me, that challenge me, that even unsettle me. But Paul's writing to the Romans. Uh, he's about to talk about his travel plans, about his ministry to the Gentiles. And he says, just kind of like in passing, one of the purposes of, of Scripture is so that we might have uh, endurance and we might have hope. Now, you know, I think that's very important that we can, because we can often think of the, the Bible as an esoteric religious book or a set of rules or merely something about religion and ethics that we're meant to ascend to. But the Bible is a book that, above all, is meant to give us hope. It gives us hope that God is there and God cares for us. In fact, he cares so much. He sent his own son to speak to us, to serve us, and ultimately to even die on the cross for our sins. And it means that there, that there, there is a love for us that God has that is so powerful that even death cannot defeat it. I mean, there, there, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And I think that is good news. In, in a world where there are many griefs, where there are many travails, where there are many plights, there are many slows of despond we can fall into. It's good to know that God is there and God is for us. And that is the good news of the gospel, that God is for us in Christ Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Mm, that's great thinking that 
like even no matter what side of the bed you wake up on or what's going on in your life, like God loves you uh, and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you and for your sins. And like that love is unchanging. And yeah, it's something super beautiful to remember. And at the, at the center of it is Jesus Christ um, who lived and died for our sins. So when we're looking at like the biblical narrative going from Genesis all the way to Revelation, how is Jesus Christ the center of the Bible? Well, that's because Jesus himself teaches us that. You know, there's a there's a very remarkable story in Luke 24, where um, you got the two disciples, uh, the two you know two travelers on the road to Emmaus who are opining, lamenting the fact that you know Jesus has died, he's been crucified, which makes them think that maybe they backed the wrong horse of the apocalypse because mm-hmm. they thought he was the one to redeem Israel, but he, instead he ended up on a Roman cross, and they meet this mysterious um, traveler with them who doesn't reveal who he is just yet. And he then goes through the scriptures and he explains to them all the things uh, concerning himself, because he's Jesus, that the Messiah had to die, uh, rise, and then enter his glory. And he says, and then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself. So Jesus himself believed that all scripture, you know, in some way, in some sense, was going to find its climax or its fulfillment in him. Now, in the early church, they definitely had some key texts in mind, like Psalm 110. You know, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool for them. That was very much what the, the exaltation of Jesus was about. And then there was Psalm 2.6, you know, you are my son, today I have begotten you. They saw that as proof of the resurrection, the, 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 the revelation, not the beginning, but the revelation of Jesus's um. Uh, divine sonship as, as God's vice regent, or they, or they could look to Psalm 118, you know, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. They could see that as, as, as almost a prophecy of Jesus given in the Psalms or the way they read Daniel chapter seven. Uh, they took a lot of their ethics as well from places like Leviticus 19, you know, love, love your neighbor as yourself. And that is to say so much of the old Testament provides the substructure, the framework, and even the content of their proclamation of Jesus, because they believe that when the time had fully come, Jesus sent his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who are under the law, and ultimately to bring Israel to their appointed place as sons and daughters of the new covenant. Hmm. That's great, Dr. Bird. Do you have anything else you want to say before we wrap up here? And after you do that, um, I'd be curious if you could share like maybe like current projects you're working on or things like that. Yeah, sure. Look, the, the, the Bible is a big book. It's a cracking uh, read, uh, but it's something that we need to be equipped and trained to read. I mean, if, you, if you're going to you know, read a legal document or, or a medical textbook, you need a little bit of training to help you get the most out of that. Uh, on the one hand, we believe in the clarity of Scripture as Protestants, but the clarity of Scripture only applies to uh, the doctrine of salvation. In other words, the gospel is clear. Everything after that, you might need a teacher. You might need a Philip to run beside your chariot and to help you um, understand the word of God. And that's why God gives us the gift of pastors and teachers in the church. So that's, that's the main thing I'd want people to take away uh, is that you do need a little bit of work to get better at biblical interpretation. You need to listen to the teachers. You need to listen to the, the wisdom of the corporate community that God has put around you. Hmm. That's great. Any projects you're working on Dr. Bird as you move forward in life? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got a very big book coming out on Christology in the ancient world. Uh, you know, in what sense was Jesus different? You know, how is the divinity of Jesus different to say the uh, alleged deification of a Roman emperor? Or what similarity is there between Jesus 
and a figure like the Son of Man in a document like One Enoch? Uh, is Jesus divine in the same way that the angel of the Lord seems to be a kind of personification of Yahweh or something like that? So that, that, that's one thing I've got going on at the moment. I'm, I'm, uh, I've been working on a, a book about what does Christology look like in the, the context of divine figures in antiquity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing I'm writing is a what's called a bird's eye view of Luke Acts. I don't know whether you, you and your readers know this, but Paul's letters are about 24% of the New Testament. Luke Acts is 28% of the New Testament. It is the single biggest subcorpus within the New Testament. So uh, I'm going through Luke Acts and just giving basically a bird's eye view of the main elements of Luke Acts and what it what it means for us today. Mm, well, right on. I'm super pumped for those things to come out. And Dr. Bird, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a great conversation. The link down to your book is below. Book. Oh my goodness, I can't speak. I need to do these in my morning and your evenings, and then maybe you might be a little uh, more tired than I am. Um, but your link to your book is down below. Um, it's. I'm really excited to read it. And yeah, thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Bird. It's been great having you on today. And I hope everyone listening found something beneficial from this conversation. Great, Zach. A pleasure to talk to you. And thank you to all your listeners for chiming in and listening. Mm -hmm. Thank you for chiming in. And we'll catch you next time. Thank you so much for joining us all. Um, God bless. And we'll see you next time. So see ya.